Make them a blessing, as you promised to do with Abraham and his children. Make them a blessing. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Would you now join your hearts and minds with mine as I lead us in a prayer of illumination? O Lord, you are indeed the God of light, and in you there is no darkness at all. We are people who live in darkness, who see through a glass darkly. We need light. We need you to open the eyes of our minds and hearts so that we can see Jesus, we can embrace his truth, and we can live it out. We pray that you would do that work in us through your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The title of the sermon is, Who's This Guy? Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and a colt on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who's this guy? You ever hear that phrase or see that in a movie? Who's this guy? I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary and it gives uh, two definitions. Uh, the first is a phrase which can be used to humiliate a person who you know well, who has just either failed at telling a joke or has just said something stupid or embarrassing. And the second definition is said when there is a stranger nearby acting in a funny or weird way. And then it concludes the phrase is generally said with a thumb in the direction of the offender and a generic piffed noise. Right? Who's this guy? You've heard somewhere, someone say that somewhere along the line. And I kind of wonder if in the crowd that day on what we call Palm Sunday, in the midst of all of that pomp and circumstance, as Jesus is riding into town with the hosannas and the palms, that maybe someone looked at him in all that moment, right? All the audaciousness of it. And it kind of threw a thumb his way and said, Pfft. Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? 
Well, perhaps I don't really have to wonder if that happened, because if you look at the text I read in Matthew's text, he tells us what the crowd was saying. He gives us an insight, and only Matthew gives us this particular insight, that when Jesus was coming into the town, into Jerusalem, into the city, in verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? Now, that question could have been asked in a tone of faith-seeking understanding. Maybe it was a humble question. Who, who is this? Or maybe that question was asked in a derisive or a tone with incredulity. Like, who is this? Who's this guy? We don't really know the tone, right? But we do know from the text for certain that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it caused an uproar. There was turmoil, right? The text, Matthew uses that phrase. There was turmoil. The whole city was in turmoil. And that Greek word that's translated as turmoil means to agitate. It means to cause to tremble. It was like an earthquake hitting the city of Jerusalem. We know for sure that this was an event that made the whole city take note. It was a, an event that was caused tumults. And so it's quite possible that when they were asking, who is this, at least some of them were thinking, who is this guy who rides in and accepts all this pomp and circumstance? What I want you to see this morning is that the triumphal entry was indeed shocking, particularly to those who first witnessed it. For us, we gather every year, right? It's part of our calendar, our liturgical calendar. We've been celebrating this for over 2,000 years, right? Where we are so familiar with it, it's so common to us. There's, we make it almost a kind of fun activity or something that is you know, embraced by children. But for those who were there on that first time when it really happened, when we just read about it in Matthew, it was an audacious occasion. It set the city in turmoil. And I think sometimes we forget that, right? Familiarity breeds contempt, and it does in this way. For us, it is common. For them, it was shocking. And it was shocking for three reasons. Three things made it shocking. The donkey, the psalms, and the hosannas. The donkey, the psalms, and the hosannas. And this morning, I want to explore with you those three shocking things of the triumphal entry. And then I want to consider and contemplate and ponder that question that the crowd asked. Who is this? So let's do that together. Let's consider the shocking nature of the triumphal entry. And the first shocking element of it was the donkey. Now what's so shocking about a donkey? Well, there's one thing that we know about Jesus is that he never called an Uber. Right? Jesus' ministry was a peripatetic ministry, right? He walked everywhere, and he did that on purpose. Some of it was merely a showing of uh, not having the trappings of wealth. 
But some of it also was to not take to himself in any way something that might indicate power or military victory. And so he walked everywhere rather than hitching a ride on a cart, a horse, a mule, a donkey. And he did that deliberately until this day. On this day, Jesus was quite deliberate about catching an Uber, right? He was quite deliberate about making sure he had a particular ride. It is Jesus who demands the donkey, right? We see that in the text. He said to the disciples, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them. Jesus is 100% in control, right? He's almost like a general here. He's giving orders. This is almost an unusual posture for Jesus to take. He's totally in control. He commandeers the donkey. This day, he's not walking. He's riding. And Jesus knows full well the significance of what he is doing. He's totally purposeful in that he's making a statement through it. This one who has hidden his identity, who spoke in parables so people couldn't quite get what he was saying. In this moment, he lets it all hang out, if you will. His hour is approaching. It has come and now is. And so he says, here I am. Your Messiah has come, and when he commandeered that donkey, he was proclaiming himself as Messiah, as conquering king. He knew the prophecies in Genesis regarding Judah, of which he was of that tribe, of course. Genesis 49, 10 and 11 reads thus, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and the obedience of the people is his, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robe in the blood of grapes. Jesus knows that prophecy, and he applies it to himself by taking that donkey. He says, I am that one, that descendant of Judah. And that prophecy is filled with royal imagery, the scepter, the ruler's staff, the tributes being paid, the obedience being rendered to him, his garments soaked in wine and the blood of grapes. Why? To make them purple. Why? Because that's the color of royalty. Jesus commandeered that donkey. He was proclaiming that he is Israel's king. That is the sign of the coming king. And then, of course, Matthew directly quotes from Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 that also applies this idea of the donkey, connects that sign and symbol to messianic kingship, Matthew 21, 4, and 5. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming. The peripatetic teacher now becomes the one who takes for himself a donkey. 
Sometimes that whole imagery gets kind of turned around. Every Palm Sunday, I will read something somewhere, some article written in a Christian publication about the donkey. And the argument will be in that article, look how humble Jesus is. He chose a donkey and not a war horse. And that's true as far as it goes. But make no mistake, beloved. This was not an act of humility. This was not Jesus underplaying, you know, understating who he was. The right and the left both kind of co-opt Jesus and make him what they want. The right into kind of a John Wayne figure, the left into this kind of overly humble and, and you know, someone who presents no risks to anybody. When Jesus took that donkey, he did something that was audacious in the time. He knew exactly what he was doing. When he chose to ride into Jerusalem on a coal and the foal of a donkey, he was in effect proclaiming himself to be Israel's coming triumphant king and Messiah. It was bold, it was dangerous, it was audacious, and it was shocking. And that's why some looked and said, who is this guy? Who's this guy think he is riding into town that way? It was shocking. And the second shocking thing were the palms. First the donkey and then the palms. Verse 8 of 21, Matthew 21, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Those tree branches being palm branches. Now, why was that so shocking? What's so shocking about palm branches? I always think it's kind of funny how we, we do that in the church today, right? We all got our branches. What if you were all handed Confederate flags? Would you be waving them around? Really? That's kind of how charged that symbol would have been in first century Jerusalem. It was an unmistakable national and rebellious symbol. It was political more than it was religious. All groups, all protesters, all uh, people who resist or push against their government, they usually adopt some type of symbol, the yellow vests in France, right? You've got the Antifa's got a symbol. White supremacists have their symbols. Every movement tries to get something symbolic, political. The palm branches were that for the Jews. It was a symbol of their independence a symbol of their desire and an understandable desire. Believe me, they were being oppressed by the Romans and they didn't want that. And who would? And those palm branches, they were a symbol of rebellion, a symbol of a day when Israel was independent and free of oppression. It went back and harkened back to the time, the great time of independence when the Maccabeans revolted and overturned the oppressive reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. 
It's recorded in the Apocrypha in 1 Maccabees 13.51. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. The palms were their victory over oppression. And they were used in the rededication of the temple when they cleansed it. Something celebrated to this day in the, in the festival of Hanukkah. Make no mistake about it, what those symbols meant. This wasn't child's play. They put palms before him, waving their branches, a signal this is the one who's going to deliver us. This is our time. And even their cloaks thrown on the road, as Matthew tells us, was a sign of glorifying and, and calling forth a king. They did it with King Jehu, 2 Kings 9.13. Then they hurriedly, they all took their cloaks and spread them for him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And they were saying when they threw those palms down and those cloaks before Jesus, riding audaciously on that donkey, they were saying, prepare the way for Jesus, our king. And when the crowd waved those palms before Jesus and threw those cloaks before him, they were in essence waving the flag of their national rebellion and their independence. They were welcoming Jesus as victor, as the deliverer, as their king, and it was bold. And it was dangerous. And it was audacious. And it was shocking, although they may have had the wrong idea, and they did, of course, have the wrong idea of Jesus' kingship, but he accepted this because he had indeed come to deliver them from oppression. But it was so bold and audacious and dangerous and shocking. No wonder some in the crowd looked at him as he's riding in on the donkey, riding over those palm branches, accepting all of that. Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? The donkey, the branches, and thirdly, the hosannas. The third shocking thing was the hosannas, was the cry of the crowd. Verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Why is that so shocking? Because the crowd is quoting from Psalm 118, a psalm that was used in the liturgy of enthronement. This is the psalm you proclaim when Israel was crowning a king, and they joined together to sing that song. Again, just like any rebellious movement, there is that song that unites the heart of the people, and here they proclaim it together. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Romans cheered on their victorious generals at the Royan, Royan, sorry, the Roman triumph, that ceremony. Well, here the crowds are proclaiming, Jesus, not Caesar, is our king. We crown Christ. And that cry, Hosanna, which means save us, is a powerful plea for deliverance from oppression. 
Psalm 118.25, they were quoting from it, Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Hosanna, the message translates it. Salvation now, salvation now. In the 1970s musical, as Diane Chen notes in her commentary, in that musical, Jesus Christ Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in that musical, and the crowd is hailing him, Hosanna, and it's translated in the play, in the musical. Hey, JC, JC, won't you fight for me? That's pretty much it. Save us. And when the crowd cried out that great proclamation, Hosanna, save us, they were calling for Jesus to fight for them, to liberate them, to deliver them from the Romans. It was bold. It was dangerous. It was audacious. It was shocking. And again, although they misunderstood how Jesus intended to save them, Jesus accepted that praise. It was appropriate for him, and he embraced their hosannas on that day, for he had come to save them. And that's why it was so shocking, that phrase, hosanna. And that's why some looked at him and said, who's this guy? Who does he think he is accepting that praise? Think about that scene for a moment. Try to escape all of our comfort with it. If you were there on that day, how uncomfortable it would be. I don't like crowds. I don't like disturbances of the peace. Do you? What would it have felt like on that day? It was a wild scene. No wonder it caused turmoil. The donkey, the, the palms and the cloaks, the hosannas, the Roman soldiers looking on, everybody on edge, the religious leaders. Phil Riken describes the scene this way. Some were tearing off their coats, throwing them in the road. Others were scrambling up trees, pulling down branches. Children lined the streets, waving their victory branches and singing it's a wild scene, bold, dangerous, audacious, and shocking. No wonder they said, who is this? Donald Hagner, in his commentary, writes this about that question, who is this? He says, it asks for an explanation of who it is that enters the city so audaciously, receiving and accepting the accompanying crowd's affirmation of him as the messianic king of the line of David. Who is this guy? And on that day, many in the crowd looked at it, right? All of that whole scene, the pomp and the circumstance and all the audaciousness. And they said, who is this guy? And to be honest with you, if I was there on that day, knowing who I am and how skeptical and cynical I am about everything, I would have been looking at Jesus and saying, who's this guy? Who does he think he is? That question. Who's this guy? Who is this? It's perhaps the most profound and important question that we could possibly ask about Jesus, right? Who is this? 
And this Palm Sunday, I want you to think about that question in your own life because it's not just a question for them to ask. It's a question for you to ask and for me to ask, for us to ask. Who is this? Unju Mary Kim writes this in her reflection on this. Our pluralistic and interreligious culture challenges Christian churches to rethink what Jesus means for them. Like the people in the city of Jerusalem, many people ask, who is this? Under the clerical hierarchy, it seems that such a question should be answered by ordained pastors and professionally trained preachers. In the text, however, she points out, Matthew puts the answer to the question on the lips of the crowd, the multitude of followers, rather than the lips of the disciples. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying, first of all, this question is asked by the people. It's not the Romans, it's not the Sanhedrin, it's not the Pharisees who are asking the question, who is this? It's the crowd, and it's the crowd who answers it. This is Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, the prophet. It's a question for the people to ask and to answer. It's a question for us to grapple with. It's a question for you. You know his titles. You know his story. You know his great deeds. Do you know him? Who is this? Who is Jesus to you? It's a very important question to answer, the most important question. It reminds me of Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma. This kind of struggle to grapple with this person, who Jesus is, with all the audaciousness of his claims. Lewis wrote this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who, merely, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Lewis goes on, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is the Son of God. Who is this? That question of that first Palm Sunday resounds through the ages to this Palm Sunday to you. Because you see, our faith, our proclamation of Jesus is no less audacious now. It is bold. It is dangerous. It is audacious. It is shocking. I mean, I come and proclaim to you that Jesus is the Son of God. That God came into this world and took to himself human flesh. The Son of God became the God-man. He walked among you. He healed the sick. 
He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. He took five loaves and two fishes and fed over 5,000. And then I tell you that that same Jesus rode into town one day on a donkey with palm branches and hosannas, that he went to a cross and died to save you from your sins, that on the third day he rose from the dead, that then he ascended into heaven while his disciples saw him, and that one day he will come back again in a similar fashion. That's what I proclaim to you. That's what the scriptures provide to you. And it is bold. It is dangerous. It is audacious. It is shocking. It is hard to believe. It is something that makes you look at this proclamation of Christ and say, who's this guy? But it's a question for you to answer in your life. Who is this guy? Who is this? Palm Sunday says to you, behold your king. Behold Christ. It's up to you to answer the question. Who's this guy? Who is he to me? Who is he to me? Who is he to me? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise and proclaim King Jesus this morning in all the audaciousness of the gospel. We embrace, we embrace its boldness, its danger, its uneasiness, the parts that are hard to believe that baffle us. Behold our King, Jesus. Amen. Let us sing this morning in response to our King. Ride on, ride on in majesty. As we sing those words in lowly pomp, he rode on to die. Lowly pomp.